So glad you're here. Listen, uh, middle schoolers, again, we're glad to have you. This is the best place for you to be. It's super fun that we have you. And if you're visiting, um, you're either here because you heard we were talking about sex or you're here and you had no idea that we were talking about it. So welcome to Westside. Hello. You're here. This is what we're talking about. We don't always talk about this. All right. We do these sermon series where everyone's, you know, we just tackle different topics and things and we look at different places in scripture. And we just thought um, we'll just take three weeks and talk about just this, this, this big idea. And we thought that our middle schoolers would be good for them to be a part of it because, because um, kids are hearing about sex and our bodies and sexual intimacy at such younger ages. And they're hearing, and they're hearing about it and learning about it all wrong. Just all wrong from all the different places in our culture where they could learn from it. So we feel like it's good for us to take some time and talk about it here. Um, if, you, uh, if you got a chance to be here last week, that's great. If you didn't, li- you need to listen to it online because I'm making a case, all right? I'm making a case. And if you come in um, partway through and you didn't hear last week, you'll be tempted to think that Christianity's approach to sexual formation and sexual desire is to like push it down, bottle, up, bottle it up, leverage shame and guilt, put some rules around it. You might be tempted to think that that's the approach and that is not the approach. So you really got to listen to last week because we were just kind of laying the foundation. So real quick, here's just a couple of the highlights from last week just to get us all caught up is first of all, Jesus is going for the heart. In this issue, and in all issues, Jesus is going for the heart. Um, everything he preached about and talked about is trying to get to the heart, to the, to, to the very basement level of our, of our motives and our desires, because he knows that all those stuff is upstream from our behavior. And so sexual ethics is, for us, for the Christian, it's downstream from the upstream stuff, which is like the heart stuff. So Jesus is going for the heart. Number two is Jesus is inviting his followers to participate in an, ultimate, an alternate kingdom. He's inviting his followers to, to participate in an alternate kingdom, which means that what I'm not doing here is I'm not talking about morality for society as a whole. Okay, that's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is for those that say Jesus is King and Lord, for those that have a vision for what he wants to be doing in our hearts and how he wants to be transforming us, for, for those of us that, that have a vision, for, we want to have a vision for what God wants to do in this world and what he's ultimately up to. The question for the Christ follower is, what do I do with my body? What do I do with my sexual desires? That's the question that we want to ask. If we're following Jesus, how do we handle that? So if you're not a Christian here and you're, you know, you're kind of, you're checking it out, just consider this. You get to kind of listen in on a group of Christians who are having, trying to have some robust dialogue about what do we do with this incredible, wonderful, beautiful gift that God gave us. Um, Number three is Jesus has grace for the struggle. He has grace for the struggle. In just a few short weeks, we're going to be talking about eight pounds, six ounce, baby Jesus. And, and. The story of Christmas is that God comes and he takes on flesh. He comes and he, and, he, and he participates in what it means to be a human. And so Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted. Jesus knows what it's like. Check this. This is interesting. Maybe you haven't thought about this before. Jesus knows what it's like to have sexual desires. He knows what that's like. And so he is, he's, he's not foreign to it. And so he is, um, uh, he is grace for the struggle. Uh, number four is Jesus is a friend of sinners. That's just what we, we have to remember. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Whenever you read about Jesus in the New Testament, Jesus is fond of sexually broken, sexually confused people. He's just always hanging out with them. And he's always creating space for them. So we're all um, in a good spot today. So last week, I, I highlighted some failed attempts at trying to, like, what we're supposed to do with our desire. So one failed attempt is to fear desire. And if you remember, the, the formula for fear, for fear desire is, um, is, 
moral standards plus willpower equals holiness. That was the, that was the, um, the kind of the, the formula of this idea of we need to fear to des- sexual desire is bad. We need to push it down. And unfortunately, the church of Jesus for, for a long time, and this might be actually the critique of the purity culture that kind of came through in the 80s and the 90s. It was this like new kind of gospel that said, if you're a virgin, when you go into marriage, then you are like the tippy top of the Christian dynamic. Like you are like, that's what it really means to be a Christian. And so everybody else that didn't meet that standard, it just, they felt guilt and shame. But they promised what, what it says, if you just have moral standards and willpower, then it will, it will, it will be, uh, you know, you'll be holy. You'll lead to holiness, but it didn't work. It doesn't work. Moral, moral standards plus just willpower, just try harder, just leads to failure. The other failed attempt is not, not the fearing uh, your, your desires, but follow your desires. To just follow your desires. And so what our world often says is, man, your desires, your sexual desires, they're natural. You don't want to push those down. You need to feed it. You need to champion it. You need to express it. You need to kind of create an identity around it. Like you need to follow those things. In fact, it's unhealthy for you to to push those things down because it's just natural. And so you need to follow your your desires. And the, uh, the, the kind of formula for that is desire plus consent take away sort of like, you know, those old puritanical, you know, moral standards, and suddenly you've got freedom, 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 freedom. But what we've learned, um, the sexual revolution, the summer of 1969, just this, this wave that took over not just our culture, but all even across the world, we're 50 years deep into that social experiment of the sexual revolution, and people are more lonely, people are more disillusioned than ever. The promise was freedom, but it didn't give freedom. The promise, it actually ended up in just tons of disillusion, disillusionment and just left people just sort of like, what, what is this for and who am I? And there's so much confusion when it comes to sex and to intimacy. And so um, in the midst of all that, Jesus steps in and says, both of those ways don't work. Both of those ways will never work. And Jesus has an alternate way. And what Jesus wants to talk to us about is not, not sexual rules, it's sexual formation. The idea that sex is so powerful, that sexual desire is so powerful that it has the power to form us, to, to shape us, to mold us. And it's either going to be used to shape us to look more like him, or it's going to sort of deform us and de-shape us and make us less, less human in a way. Um, the Bible talks about sex. If you're taking notes, you, you can write this down. The Bible talks about sex not primarily because it's bad and it's trying to warn us. It's because it's so good and it's trying to form us. Not because it's so bad, but because it's so good and it's trying to form us. So the way of Jesus is this. The way of Jesus says, don't fear desire, don't follow desire, you submit your desire. Submit your desire. Let me have those desires. And the new formula that he gives us, this new way that Jesus followers get to follow is this. It's vision plus power plus practices equals restoration. Vision plus power plus practices equals restoration. So today, um, I'm taking the ball down the field. I want to talk about this vision. I want to talk about what Christians have historically taught about the vision for our bodies, for sexual desire, what it's for. Um, and uh, and I, so that's what I'm going to talk about. But before I can talk about that, you, you have, we have to talk about identity because identity is powerful. Identity is really, really, really powerful. Identity shapes and forms all of our behaviors. Um, I, I remember when I, uh, one time, it was, it was actually 16 years ago. It was October 25th, 2003. 
Oregon was playing Stanford at Autzen Stadium, all right? Oregon was playing Stanford, and I was in the stands. I was there that day. And I was a student at the U of O at the time, so I'm in the student section, and the game is, is going on, and Oregon is ahead, I think, at halftime, and it's halftime now, and the cheerleaders come out and do their thing, and the band does their thing, and then, like, the music starts playing, and everything stops, and then the announcer is like, so, the Oregon Ducks, and when, we were, when they were constructing Autzen Stadium, they discovered a huge egg underneath Autzen Stadium. And they wheeled out this gigantic egg. Like, it was, it was like huge. It was just a huge, huge egg right into the middle of the field. And the music got all boom, 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 and all like intense. And the, all the students were like, what is going on? And there was smoke and everything. And they're like, and, and what had happened was there was like the copyright dispute between Disney and, you know, because we have puddles, right? But there's a copyright dispute. So Oregon felt like they had to introduce a new mascot. And I was there that day when they introduced, do you guys remember Mandrake? Do you remember this? You guys remember Mandrake? Ah, thank you. See? <laughs> Literally, I'm sitting there at Austin Stadium, and the egg cracks open, and Mandrake jumps out. And he does, like, 12 flips in the air. And then he's like... And I know the people who put it all together thought the crowd would go wild, but literally, I'm sitting in the, in the student section, and it was silent. <laughs> and everybody's looking at each other like... Like, like, what are they doing? And boo, the booze started, and everybody's like, get Mandrake out of here. So he, he became affectionately known as RoboDuck, and <laughs> RoboDuck stuck around for, like, not very long at all. And the organ said, like, hey, we're just going to keep puddles, right? Because puddles is our identity, right? You try to, like, you try to take puddles out of it, and you try to do this, and it's like, it just seems like it's forced, and he's like, ah, you know, what's the deal? Because, you know, the identity of the Oregon duck, it's a powerful thing. And when something tries to come and change it, it there's going to be tons of resistance. Identity is powerful. Identity shapes behavior. And so for the Christian, here's where it lands, is you can't understand the Christian view of sexual intimacy and sexual desire unless you understand that we have a new identity in Christ, that we are called to a different story than the rest of the world. That we just got through this whole sermon series about the church, and we looked at this passage where Paul says this incredible thing about the church. He says that the church gets to be the new humanity, not the better humanity, not the humanity that looks down its noses at everybody else because we think we're better. No, we don't think we're better. We just think we, we think we need as much grace, if not more, than anybody else on the planet, and we believe that Jesus gave it to us. Through, and, and, and so, therefore, we are changed people. We're the new humanity. And unless you get that, any Christian uh, sort of, of lines about sexual morality or any Christian lines about sexual ethics just kind of seem really silly. If you don't understand that it's not about rules for us, we don't get excited about rules. That's not who we are, that we have a new identity in Christ. He's transformed us. He's pulled us out of darkness into light. Therefore, we are, we're different. We're, 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 we're set apart in a way where we have a new identity, and that's where our sexual ethics come from. And when you separate sex from its creator, no, there's no wonder why people are more confused about their identities than they ever have before. The more that sex is, is separated from its design, from its purpose, just the more, the more confusion that there is because things are made with a design, right? You can't pop popcorn in your espresso machine. It won't work. That'll be some nasty popcorn. Or maybe it'll be like coffee popcorn. I don't know. 
Um, maybe I just discovered something new just now. Um, you can, things are made with a purpose. And if you use them for a different purpose, it, it breaks down. There's confusion. And when there's confusion about who God is, there's, of course there's going to be confusion about sex, sexual intimacy, sexual desire, what our bodies are for. So for the Christian, it starts upstream with our identity. It's our new identities in Christ. One favorite, my favorite story, before I get to the scripture, my favorite story is from uh, this old saint, St. Augustine. St. Augustine's story is that he, when he was a young man, he was very pr- promiscuous. And so he slept around with all sorts of people when he was a young man. Um, he's famous for saying, Lord, give me chastity, but not yet. <laughs> give it to me, Lord, but just, just let, me, let me have some time first. And so he lived that sort of life, but then just, just got radically transformed and changed. And so he went and uh, just became really one of the one of important one of the important fathers of the early church, Saint Augustine. But there's this great story where he's he's now a little bit older and he's walking in the town, one of the towns where he used to hang around, used to live, and he's walking in this town. And this uh, a former lover of his, a woman, sees him, and she calls out his name, Augustine, Augustine. And you know he's he doesn't hear, so she gets closer, Augustine, and she comes up next to him and she, and she says, Augustine, it's me, it's me. And as the story goes, Augustine turns around and looks at her with, with a sparkle in his eyes. He says, ah, but, but it's not me. But it's not me. Because I'm, trained. I'm, I'm transformed. I'm changed. I'm a different person than I was before. And that's the heart of where Christian sexual ethics comes from. We're transformed and changed. I want to take you to a passage of scripture. This is probably one of the places where the Apostle Paul lays it out for us in a way that I just, and there's no other place in scripture where I can find a place where he lays it out like this. I'm going to read it to you in the version of the message because I feel like the way that Eugene Peterson writes it in the message is just so helpful in the wording of it. Paul is writing to a church in Corinth. It's a group of people who are confused about, their, about sexuality. They're confused about their bodies. They've come from a culture where they would go down and they would worship their God, you know, by sleeping with the temple prostitute. And if you slept with the temple prostitute, then, then it, would, like, it would make your fields more fertile. And that was sort of like sort of the pagan religion that they were in. But then they meet Jesus and they, and they believe the truth that Jesus is alive and they're transformed. They're different, but they've got questions. Paul, should we go to the temple prostitute anymore, Paul? Is that like, should we, is that okay? Does that jive with our new identities in Christ? And so Paul has to write them and just answer these questions. He's not putting rules down for them. He's helping them understand the design of it, the vision. And here's what he says. Um, they're talking about Christians taking each other to court and, and he gets through that section and he says, don't you realize that this is not the way to live? Don't take each other to court and just work it out there. He says, don't do that. Unjust people who don't care about God will not be joining his kingdom. Those who use and abuse each other, use and abuse sex, use and abuse the earth and everything in it, they don't qualify as citizens in God's kingdom. Not because they're not good enough. He's not saying that like, oh, they just don't get in. It's like those sort of things don't fit in God's new kingdom that he's building. Just those things don't fit anymore. They're just not going to work there. He says, a number of you know from experience what I'm talking about. For not so long ago, you were on that list. Since then, you've been cleaned up. You've been given a fresh start by Jesus, our master, our Messiah, and by our God present in us, the Holy Spirit. He says, just because something is technically legal doesn't mean that it's spiritually appropriate. It would have been technically legal for them to go down to the temple prostitute. And so they're like, it's legal, Paul, so should we not do it? And he's trying to, he's, he's spelling it out for him. He says, just because something's technically legal doesn't mean it's spiritually appropriate. If I went around doing whatever I thought I could get by with, I'd be a slave to my whims. You know the old saying, first you eat to live 
and then you live to eat. Well, it may be true that the body is only a temporary thing, but that's no excuse for stuffing your body with food or indulging it with sex. And he's trying to say that sex is so much more than just an appetite. That it's not just like something you're just supposed to quench and, you know, that's all. He says there's so much more to it. And he goes on. He says, since the master honors you with a body, honor him with your body. God honored the master's body. That's talking about Jesus. God honored Jesus' body by raising it from the grave. And he'll treat yours with the same resurrection power. Until that time, remember that your bodies were created with the same dignity as the master's body. And you wouldn't take the master's body off to a whorehouse, would you? No, I should hope not. He says, there's more to sex than mere skin on skin. Sex is as much a spiritual mystery as a physical fact. I love that he says that it's a mystery. It's like, this is, this is not just a physical thing. I mean, this, like, this is deep. This is rich. I mean, this is a mystery. As written in scripture, the two become one. And since we want to become spiritually one with the master, we must not pursue the kind of sex that avoids commitment and intimacy, leaving us more lonely than ever. The kind of sex that can never become one. He says there's a sense in which sexual, sexual sins are different from all others. In sexual sin, we violate the sacredness of our own bodies. These bodies that were made for God-given and God-modeled love for becoming one with one another. Or didn't you realize that your body is a sacred place, the place of the Holy Spirit? Don't you see that you can't live however you please, squandering what God paid such a high price for? The physical part of you, I love this, the physical part of you is not some piece of property belonging to the spiritual part of you. God owns the whole works. So please, so let people see God in and through your body. This is rich, guys. There's so much here. Giving us a vision, a picture. Notice, he's not giving us rules. Don't do this, guys. That's nasty. That's bad. Okay? He doesn't, that's not his interest. His interest is to give us a Christian vision. So here's what I want to do. I just want to give you some historically just four things that Christians have taught about what, what sex is for, what sexual intimacy is for, what sexual desire is for, what our bodies are for. Um, the first one is this, is sex, sexual desire is a signpost to the greater story of intimacy and unity that we long for. It's a signpost to a greater story, the greater story of intimacy and unity that we ultimately long for. Um, Christians have always taught and believed that sex is pointing to a greater reality. It's actually pointing to this like bigger overarching story that we long for. And, you know, so what is sex? What, you give yourself fully and you have someone else fully. And to be fully known and fully accepted for who you are. I mean, that's... That's like that nakedness that comes with, with sexual intimacy is you're, you're known. You're known, and it's like you see somebody's giving themselves to you, and you're giving yourself to someone. And in the garden, in Genesis 1 and 2, it says that they were naked and unashamed, and it's because they, aren't, they weren't terrified of rejection like we are. They weren't terrified of rejection because they knew that they were loved. They knew that they had intimacy with God. <sighs> And so the gospel is a story of a God who sees us as we really are. The gospel is a story of a God who sees us in our nakedness, a God who sees us in, in, with all of our flaws, with, with everything about us, and he sees us and he calls us loved. He says, I'm going to give myself fully to you, and I'm going to bring you in fully to me. 
And so sexual intimacy and sexual desire is like supposed to be this like engine that points us toward this, this bigger overarching story that we ultimately have in Jesus Christ. It points us to a greater reality that we were made for connection. And this ultimate connection that we so long for isn't going to be satisfied here on this earth. It's going to only be satisfied when we're with him in the new kingdom at the very end. And so sex is a physical reminder of the union that we ache for. And it points us beyond ourselves towards the other, towards something greater. And this explains humanity's obsession with sex. This explains it because we are so obsessed. Humans have always been, but certainly in our culture today. And I don't want to bore you with words like postmodernism and, you know, things like that. But can I bore you for a second with postmodernism? Um, Postmodernism came out of this time where we had World War I, and people said, we're not going to do that again. Then we had World War II right on the back end of that, and they said, we're certainly not going to have that again. And then we had Vietnam, and then we had the Cold War, and then we had all these other wars. And in the midst of that, people said, you know what the problem is? The problem with all these wars is that whenever somebody has a truth claim that believes that their truth is the ultimate truth and that it supersedes all other truths, people are going to resort to violence to make people submit to their source of truth. To their, to their truth claim. And so we're just not going to do that anymore. So now we live in this postmodern world where the best way to describe postmodernism is a suspicion of all truth claims. It's a suspicion of any sort of bigger meta-narrative that, 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 that supersedes other stories. And so we live in this world where people say, like, I don't know, truth, old design, creator, oh gosh, doesn't that just lead to violence? And the Christian would say, no, it doesn't, doesn't lead to violence at all, not, not for us. But there's a suspicion of truth claims. And so in that gap, in that gap where people have lost the sense of creation, lots of, lost the sense of divine, we have to fill it with other things. And sexual intimacy and sexual desire has been one of those things that easily comes in and takes the place of God. And that's why we're so obsessed. In Deborah Hirsch's book, Redeeming Sex, which is required reading, by the way, so good. She says this, the late psychiatrist M. M. Scott Peck was convinced that buried in our explicit pursuit of sex is an implicit pursuit of God. He noted that sex is likely to be the closest thing that most people ever come to a genuine spiritual experience. It was this yearning for the spiritual, he contended, that explained why so many chase after sex with a repetitive, desperate kind of abandon. It is no accident, he wrote, that even atheists and agnostics will, at the moment of orgasm, routinely cry out, Oh, God. I'm blushing. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I thought about not reading that quote. <laughs> a culture obsessed with sex is actually a culture obsessed with the search. The search for intimacy, for connection. The French soci- There's another quote from Philip Yancey. The, the French sociologist uh, Jacques Lou, I can't say it, saw our modern fixation with sex, listen to this, this is good, as the symptom of a breakdown in intimacy. Having detached the physical act of sex from relationship, we can only work at perfecting the technique. Hence the proliferation of sex studies, sex manuals, and sex videos, none of which address the real source of our pain. When a society loses faith in God, lesser powers arise to take God's place. And this is why G.K. Chesterton said that every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is actually searching for God. Because he's searching for something deeper, searching for something that his heart is actually longs for and aches for, to be known, to be intimate, 
to be recognized. Philip Yancey again, he says, the very word sex comes from a Latin verb, which means to cut off or sever. And sexual impulses drive us to unite, to restore somehow the union that's been severed. Freud diagnosed the deep pain within us as a longing for union with a parent. Jung diagnosed a longing for union with the opposite sex. But the Christian sees a deeper longing for union with the God who created us. Sexual intimacy is a sacred pointer to something even greater, something truly out of this world. In one sense, we are never more godlike than in the act of sex. We make ourselves vulnerable. We risk. We give and receive in a simultaneous act. We feel the primordial delight entering into the other in communion. Quite literally, we make one flesh out of two different persons, experiencing for a brief time a unity like no other. Two independent beings open their inmost selves and experience not a loss, but a gain. And in some way, a profound mystery, not even Paul dared explore, dared to explore. This human act reveals something of the nature of reality, God's reality in his relations with creation and perhaps within the Trinity itself. Man. This is why sexuality, according to the world, often can be so disheartening. Because in the world, you give yourself to someone and you want to be fully known and be fully loved. And when they reject you, it's like a knife in the heart. And you just don't know if you can live with yourself anymore. Because, you, because you've put your identity just in that this person's going to give that thing to you. And that person can't give it to you ultimately and finally. Because the thing that we long for is the God who created us. So... It's a God who loves us. This is the gospel. It's a God who loves us. He chose us. He rescued us. He became naked and vulnerable on our behalf, and he gave himself to us unconditionally. And what every human being longs for is to be fully vulnerable, fully accepted, and received without rejection, and that's who we have in the person of Jesus Christ. That's number one. Number two is this. Another thing that Christians have taught about sex is that it's all about holistic integration, It's about holistic integration, that the whole point of sex is whole life, whole life integration, that when two people have sex, it's supposed to be a picture of two people integrating their whole lives, their whole lives, not just their physical bodies, but it's supposed to be a picture of two people integrating their futures, their dreams, their finances, their emotions, everything, everything about themselves is supposed to be a picture of two people becoming one. And it, it's, a, it's, it's like a way of saying, I don't just accept you physically. I don't, ac- I don't just accept you phys- physically. I accept everything about you, even the parts that I don't like so much, even the parts that I don't know about yet. I accept you fully. And what that actually does is it increases intimacy. <laughs> That's where intimacy actually happens. That's what sex is for. It's supposed to create that intimacy because it's two lives coming together completely. We accept each other. We, we love each other to the end. And when, re, when you reduce sex to a physical act, like our culture is so good at doing, when, when sex gets reduced to just something physical, it becomes impotent to do what it was designed to do. And it, and it just gets minimized to just mechanics and techniques. Um, do you guys remember the movie? There's a movie with Russell Crowe not long ago called A Beautiful Mind. Remember that? There's this guy named John Nash, and he's this brilliant guy. Um, but he doesn't uh, have a lot of social skills, and he doesn't have very much. He doesn't, he doesn't have very much game. All right. So he's at, at, with his friends at a bar, and they're picking up chicks at the bar. And so John Nash, he gives it a go. And so you remember this part in the movie? He's in the bar, and he goes up to this woman, and he says, "Listen, I don't have the words to say whatever it is, whatever uh, that is necessary to get you into bed. 
So can we just pretend I said those things and skip to the part where we exchange bodily fluids? <laughs> and what does she do? She slaps him, right? Rightfully so, right? Because you can't reduce sex like that. But that's what our culture does. That's what pornography is all about. Pornography is all explicit up close. Pornography is just, it's all about genitals. Pornography is just all about just right up in there. Why? And, and the stories are pathetic. The stories are pathetic. Why? Because there is no story. Because there's no story to tell. Because it's not pointing to anything deeper or bigger. It's just physical. And so like Rob Bell says in, in his book, another great book called called Sex God, he says this, and I thought it was really, it struck me when I read this. He says that the red light district in Amsterdam is so sexually repressed. The red light district in Amsterdam is sexually repressed? No, 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 that's where people go into like pick up prostitutes and so much sex is like freedom, like free sex there. Like how is that sexually repressed? He says, of course it's sexually repressed. He goes, there's no connection. Sleeping together and still sleeping alone. That's what happens when we separate sex from its design, from its intention, its creation. It just gets minimized and actually becomes repressed, not, not, no, not freedom. It gets pushed down. And this is why I love how Andy Stanley says this. He says, intimacy, this is how he can say this, intimacy is fueled by exclusivity, not experience. That's so good. That's so true. But we're just taught something completely different. If you want to have good sex, then you need, it's all about technique. You know, when you go into, on the, in, in the line at Safeway um, or at Albertsons and you see all the magazines there and you see Cosmo, I guarantee you, I, we could just, I, I'll bet money on it, that we could just pick one up right now. And one of the headlines on Cosmo is going to be six new sex positions that the astronauts discover, discovered in zero gravity. You won't believe it. It'll all, you know, like, like, what, you know, like, ab city. If you just get, like, you know, 12, 20 abs, then your sex is going to be great. And it's just, like, all of that stuff. And it's not going to talk at all about character. It's not going to talk about intimacy. It's not going to lead us anywhere where we want to go. You know why those make headlines? Because those sell magazines. And God loves you and cares about you. Those magazines don't care about you and, and love you. And so God is telling us, no, 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 don't just turn it into something physical. Don't minimize it to just technique because intimacy is fueled by exclusivity, not experience. That's where real intimacy comes. So that's how God created it. It's supposed to be a picture of whole life union. Number three, um, sexual desire, it's tied to our transformation. It's actually tied to our transformation. Um, we're live, we live in this sort of, the, the way that we could describe it is this like chaste tension where God's given us this powerful, beautiful, wonderful thing of sexual desire. And yet we know that we can't just follow our desire, that that will always lead us to a place where we're just bankrupt of intimacy and bankrupt of connection. So we live in this tension. We have to live in this tension where we have to have discipline and we have to develop the practice of saying no, of resisting some of our desires. Our world says, don't resist, those are natural. But the Christian says, no, 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 uh, my natural inclinations, if I just follow those, will not lead me to good places. We've all heard, follow your heart. In fact, we've all followed our hearts at different times and it's led us in a lot of cases to nowhere good. 
because we said our hearts were leading us somewhere and it just took it. We bought that thing. We, we, you know, we invested in this thing because my heart told me to and, and it was a bad idea. And so the Christian doesn't do that. The Christian builds the practice of saying no to my desires instead of just following our desires because, because it actually has the potential to produce deep spiritual growth and profound character transformation in us. It can push down the worst in us. It can release the best in us because it points us outward towards sacrificial love, towards self-control, self-control. The Bible talks a lot about self-control. And unfortunately, sometimes if you're an outsider and you read self-control in the Bible, it's like, you know, outside in, rules, 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 but no, self-control is beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Um, one of my boys, a couple months ago, we were having, uh, we were roasting marshmallows in the summer. And we were roasting marshmallows, and everything was going great. And, I, you know, I, I leave my kids alone for, like, two minutes to go get something, and I come back. And it's not what you think. You'd think that they start a fire, you know, somewhere. But one of my sons had gone into the kitchen and, and brought out the ketchup. <laughs> and he's literally dipping his roasted, beautiful marshmallow in ketchup. And he's eating it. And I, and, I was just, and I was just ashamed. I was just appalled. So disappointed in you, son. I'm like, don't you read your Bible, son? Like, no, you don't do that. If you just like, I, I, so what? I have to say no to some things, right? Because if you just follow your heart on things, it's going to lead you to nowhere good, right? Because we, we all know that one of the worst things you can do with your kids is just to let, give them everything they ask for, right? It's one of the worst things you can do for your kids is just never say no. Just give them everything. And so we know that with kids, but when it comes to our lives, we, you know, we're adults, and so I should, you know, follow these things and follow these things. And no, the same rule applies, that buried in this like beautiful, powerful thing of sexual desire. It is a strong pull. It's a strong desire. Yes, it is. But we're in the middle of it, and we have the ability. We have the ability to say no, to have self-control. And what that actually does is it transforms us. It's one of God's ways that he transforms us. And this happens whether you're married, you've got self-control. This happens when you're single, you've got self-control. It's trans sex is being used to transform all of us, no matter what season of life that you're in. It's one of God's ways to transform us and shape our character. Last, number four, God created sex for us as Christians to engage in it because it becomes a witness to the world. It becomes a witness to the world. Um, what does that mean? Well, church, the church of Jesus is supposed to be a counterculture movement. It's a movement where people aren't commodified, where we uphold the things that God says is beautiful and right, like, like he calls sex. We, we, we don't repress it. We hold it up in high esteem. And we, we, we figure out what it's for because he's the one that created it. He created it. And when Christians follow Jesus in this area, when we give him our desires instead of fear desire or instead of follow desire, it actually creates this radical different kind of people that the world looks at and says, says, what are they doing? This is so different and strange. You know, the early church conquered the Roman Empire in just 300 years and without lifting a weapon. The early church conquered the whole Roman Empire, and they did it with four things. They did it using four things. They forgave their enemies. They were financially generous. 
They cared for the poor and the sick, and they let Jesus be lord of their sexual desires. And the Romans didn't have a category for them. The Romans had no idea what to do with these Christians. They were just so different. I read this letter of Diognetus a couple years at our church because I just love it. And there's this line in there that says, these Christians, they share a common table, but not a common bed. They're so different. And so we get to be a testimony to the world of this, that we get to be free from having to cram eternity into a moment. When you believe that God is going to make all things right and that this earth isn't all that there is and that there's something beyond this and it's all pointing to a deeper purpose, what that actually does is free you up to not try to squeeze, you know, all the pleasure that you can in life, trying to squeeze all the acclaim that you can out in life. If you do that with your life, you'll just squeeze it out of everybody. You'll try to cram eternity into a moment and it'll ruin it all. But for the Christian, we get to be a testimony to the world that God made this place. He loves it. It's good. It's going somewhere. He's given us a job to do. We get to be the new humanity in it. And so therefore, therefore we get to take God's good gifts that he gave us and we get to engage in them. We get to hold them. We get to respect them. We don't let them lead us and guide us. We don't turn them into our gods. No, we let God be Lord over all of them. Those are four things that Christians have historically taught about the vision of what what sex is for. So I got to ask you a question. So say we all agree with all of everything I just said. So you, we all agree with all of that. Does it make, does all that, knowing all that make it just so much easier for you to not look at porn? Does it just make it, you know, like no more temptation? You know, like I'm fine. I know all that stuff now. Huh. So now I'm good. So now, you know, no more, no more slip ups. You know, no, I'm just, no, we need more because it can't just be just like something you believe. Just, it's not just the vision. What I said is we need vision plus power plus practices. And that power and practices is what I'm going to tackle next week. And so you can't miss next week. By the way, heads up, next week will not be for the faint of heart because we're going to take a couple different, couple different like things that are in our world right now and we're just going to kind of look at them and try to understand them and have a Christian perspective of, of how do I engage in that. So we're going to talk a lot about pornography last week. We're going to talk about masturbation next week. We're going to talk about dating apps next week. It's going to be a lot of fun, all right? So you don't want to miss it, among, among other things, all right? Um, but here's what I want to do. Jenny, will you come back up? In fact, band, will you come back up? Can we just take a moment and just, as the band is coming back up, we're just going to kind of close today. And I just want to pray for us as we close. And I just want to pray that maybe for some of us, for some of you, it's for you, it's been all about rules. And you've been, you felt like judged or you felt shame because maybe you didn't follow some of those rules. And so you've just, you've just been wrestling that for forever. And I just want you to see today that God is offering an opportunity. He's offering an opportunity of restoration. He's not about slapping hands because we broke rules. He doesn't want to do that. He wants the heart. He wants your heart. He's going after the heart. He's going after upstream stuff. And if, you, if we would just let him tackle upstream stuff, if we would just humbly just acknowledge, God, I, I love you. What, what you have to say about this area of my life, Lord, I, I want to trust it. I want to believe it. I've spent a lot of my life kind of doing my own thing because I believed it would, it would give me what I wanted. But maybe this morning I recognize that it, I find that ultimately in you. And that's going to free me. And that's going to bring wholeness and healing in life. And maybe, maybe you just need to be honest about that with him this morning. Maybe you just need to say, God, will you just come into this area in my life? 
I just need your truth. I just need your eyes. I need your perspective. Just let him in. Let him handle that, the heart stuff. And here's what we believe. It'll trickle down. It'll trickle down. It's not going to change everything in a moment. It's not going to, it's not going to, you know, it's not going to magically like, oh, we're going to walk out of here all fine. But it's, it's going to go to work because the gospel works. It works. It's true. He loves you today. No shame, no guilt. Come to Jesus. He cares about you. There's a better way.